Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we are working chapter by chapter through the books of Deuteronomy and Romans. Today, we are working through chapter 5. This is a complex chapter. Um, We're starting a new section in the book of Romans where we're working through um, Paul's understanding of sin and death and how Jesus's victory over sin and death sums up both the Jewish and Gentile issues in the Roman church. Um, That and much more will be discussed here today on this episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. So stick around. Um, It's going to be a long one. So um, I usually try and give like a small recap of the last couple chapters um, before we kind of start into this chapter. And uh, I think that's really important for this section in particular because we're beginning a new section in the book of Romans. Um, There have been a lot of academic articles and books written on the difference between chapters one through four and five through eight in the book of Romans. Um, It's kind of interesting. Chapters one through four often get kind of taken by, uh, I guess I would call the evangelical Christian movement in America. Um, It's all about justification and salvation. And uh, so those four chapters really get... um, pushed to the forefront of interpretations of Romans, and I would say a lot of evangelical Christians often read the entire book of Romans from the lens of chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 5 through 8 are interesting because they are far more... um, Uh, Catholic in their workings, and Catholics often will use chapters 5 through 8 to argue their own interpretation of the Book of Romans. There's a lot of what I will call um, precipitation um, language in it. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) uh, precipitation is rain. Sorry about that. Once again, uh, get words mixed up. Participation. There we go. It often has participation language where we are uh, participating in Christ. You will notice in chapters 5 through 8, this phrase that Paul uses quite a bit in Ephesians and in other places like in Colossians comes up a lot. Um, This phrase, in Christ, we are in Christ, especially in Romans 6, you'll find that um, we are baptized in Christ and buried in baptism with Christ, right? Um, This within, um, they're, they're becomes this kind of personal uh, dimension to the language that Paul is using about Christianity. And it doesn't just become really about Jesus dying anymore. It actually becomes about us dying with Christ. And we take on this very action-oriented living that lives out Jesus's death and resurrection. And so Romans 5 through 8 is going to really focus on that. Um, It is, I think, one of the most majestic 
literary pieces in the book of Romans. Um, I have mentioned this before in the Deuteronomy podcast, but you can actually map um, chapters 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Romans on to the story of Israel um, after they are freed from Egypt. Um, Chapter 6 would be the Red Sea moment or the Reed Sea moment, um, if you are reading a more modern translation. Um, And chapter 7 would be... um, they're stopping at Mount Sinai and receiving the law of God. And then chapter 8 would be um, they're entering into the land of Canaan and entering into God's rest um, after their wanderings in the wilderness. Um, and you can see that Paul is taking that Israelite story of um, baptism uh, mapping on to their Red Sea moment, um, Romans 7, which is all about the law, mapping on to the Mount Sinai moment, and then Romans 8, which is all about the Spirit coming and bringing about that final um, salvation, sanctification on humans in which we actually finally get to experience um, the rest that we were always promised. Um, that all kind of culminates in kind of a mapping on to the Israelite story of the Old Testament, which makes a lot of sense because, as you know from all of these episodes, my big point throughout the whole book of Romans, what I think is Paul's thesis, is he's trying to show how the Israelite story and the Gentile story, um, while they may have different roads, they ultimately end in the same place, which is in a need for Jesus and a need for his um, gift of grace. And so throughout the entirety of this book, um, he's trying to show just how similar even the stories of a Gentile and the stories of a Jew can be. And so I think Romans 6 through 8, though he never says it explicitly, Romans 6 through 8 is an attempt at him doing literary flourish, flourishing, really strutting his literary abilities so that he can show um, that the story of Christianity is the story of Exodus reworked, um, which is just really, really crazy. And it's going to be fun to talk about those chapters. But chapter five is interesting because he really starts before Exodus with Adam. And Adam is the um, figure that all humans um, are going to see themselves under. And that is a very Jewish story, like a Gentile would never think of Adam as their first um, uh, father. Um, But that is exactly what he is setting up in this chapter, is setting up all humanity underneath the representation of Adam. And it's Adam's sin that causes um, all of the rest of human um, failure to come about. And so in in, in a huge way, it's it's really like... um, still working that vein of everybody is in the same situation. And he's really going to boil down on who was the originator of that and actually contrast that with um, Jesus and what Jesus does and how we now can all be summed up again under Jesus. Um, And we no longer need to be summed up under Adam, um, which is going to be a powerful, powerful continuation of his argument from Abraham, where he argued that 
um, Abraham sums up both a Jew and a Gentile. Now Adam will be the figure that sums up both a Jew and a Gentile, um, with far more focus on the outcomes of Adam, and we'll get to talk about that in this episode. We'll get to talk about death is probably the most prominent in this chapter. Um, chapter six also has a lot of death, but it's um, the reworking of death in a positive way. This is um, uh, this is like sort of like in many ways, I would say Romans five is taking Romans one and looking at Romans one from a new angle. But at the same time, it's also carrying forward pa- Paul's argument about how the Roman church should really consider the covenant of God that he established with the Jews is now complete with Jesus and that death has been abolished. And so um, it it is very, very hard to talk about this chapter. Um, And this is a chapter that I spent so many hours reading commentaries on because I felt like um, in many ways there are so many things that Paul is trying to communicate from so many different points of view and different angles. Um, And it's hard really to condense and talk about each one, uh, especially um, with Romans 1 through 4 and kind of the background, because even even chapters 1 through 4, I'm really, I'm bringing several different thoughts all to the forefront, Um, but I am kind of carrying one of those thoughts more prominently into the foreground, which is the thesis that I've said from the very beginning is that God uh, is that Paul really believes that Jesus is death and resurrection unifies both the Jewish story and the Gentile story, and that they're all summed up underneath that. But there is quite a bit of other things that have come along with that. Um, in particular, there is this big overarching question of like. Well, if that's true, especially in Romans 3, we talked about this, um, what what do we do with God's promise that he was actually going to fix the world through Israelites, through Jews? Um, how, how does that work out if Jesus is now the answer to both Jews and Gentiles? How does, how does that work out? And we will see a little bit in this chapter, and uh, we talked about it in the Abrahamic chapter um, before this, um, that a lot of that answer is in the fact that Jesus is acting as a Jew um, and is enacting the covenant that the Israelites were supposed to be doing and following that same law himself and living that same law, which then fulfills it. Um, And that we'll see quite quite heavily in this chapter as well. Um, there's a lot of really cool things at the start of this chapter that really show um, that um, a lot of the things that Paul saw the Jews doing in their day and age, boasting about the law and how the law was the thing that if they followed fully and most um, uh, with uh, heavy conviction that this was the way that was going to bring about salvation for the rest of the world, if they followed that law, they could boast in their own Jewish identity. And what you will find in chapter 5 is it's all about boasting, but it's now boasting from the perspective of Christ and what Jesus 
did and how Jesus is Jesus being a Messiah in a very different way than any Jew expected is the outcoming of that. So, like I said, there are so many different things. Like I'm, I'm really trying to keep this as simplified as possible, but um, there are so many different angles one can take. And uh, like I said, it's super difficult to be able to talk about each one clearly and succinctly to the point that each of you that's listening can understand it and um, just know that there's so much rich things that we aren't talking about in these chapters um, or I'm mentioning briefly and then moving on from um, and you can go and read the book of Romans almost every day of your life and you will find something new within the book that really shines through. So um, all of that I would say is just a preamble to what I'll give is like a short summary here. Um, we start in chapter one with Paul's addressing to the people of Rome and talking about how he longs to see them, um, how he wants to um, share with them what the gospel means to him. Um, it's not just about trying to convert them, like we said in chapter one. It's about the fact that they are Christians, but he really wants to deepen their understanding of how the gospel matters to not just getting saved, but also to unification and the unifying of um both Jew and Gentile. This is something that comes up actually in Galatians 2, where um, Paul is affronted that Peter is eating at a different table um, with his own Jewish friends and leaving the Gentiles to eat at their own separate table. And he doesn't just say that's a sin. He says that's an affront to the gospel. Um, And so Paul really saw that action of separation and distinction, Jew from Gentile, as a action of... Um, going against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think Romans is kind of a long-form explanation of why that makes sense. Um, And the whole book of Romans is kind of arguing for why it would be a anti-gospel action to sit at a different table from a Gentile. Um, Chapter 2 then um, focuses in on, well, really the ending of chapter 1 into the Uh, chapter 2 then focuses on both the Gentile um, pagan um, uh, idolatry of the time period and how sin has worked in that pagan idolatry to just become a powerful force in the Gentiles' lives. And then um, in chapter 2, it talks about how that sin has made its way even into the Christians of Rome and that even they, um, in some ways, shapes or forms, are still performing some sins and that there is going to be a final judgment in which Christ comes and judges between um, good people that have, not just good people, but Christians that have stayed true to Christ's message and Christians that have allowed the power of sin and flesh to invade their lives. And he focuses very particularly on hypocrisy in chapter 2, saying that if you are a Christian, um, whether Jew or Gentile, that is criticizing other people and asking them to do things that you yourself are not following, um, then you are going to be judged just as much and just as severely as if you were not a Christian at all. That's Romans 2's big message. And he talks about, in particular, he uses an example of the law of Moses and how um, the law um, is one of the primary ways that Jews are um, judging uh, Gentiles, um, and uh, they are trying to get these Gentiles to be um, circumcised and uh, follow kosher laws, and um, that 
kind of implied note there is that while they're trying to get these uh, Gentiles to um, uh, follow these kinds of very strict Torah laws, they're also robbing temples and um, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And as a result, um, Paul is um, uh, talking about how the law um, is not this extra add-on to Christianity that allows a person to be in a more holier status, um, and that the law actually is something that condemns Jews even more severely than it does a Gentile. Um, and by the end, um, he gets to chapter 3, in which he starts to um, anticipate a few objections to um, that, and in chapter 3, he talks about how Jews still have value in the community. Um, they still are able to follow uh, still uh, still the holders of the law um, and, and the covenant, and they still have, um, like I was saying earlier, they still have this status and promise from God that they're going to be this people that um, bring a um, light to the Gentiles. And that is something that they still can see as like their goal. However, um, what he will then begin to explain is that um, the Jews uh, were failing at that quite heavily. And so Jesus, as their Messiah, as their Jewish Messiah, is the one that actually fulfills that covenant. And that's what he talks about at the very end of chapter 3, how Jesus, um, Jesus's death and resurrection proves that he was both the Messiah and that the covenant of that God made with Israel is now complete. Um, as a result of that, he then talks about circumcision and uses Abraham as an example of how um, faith in Jesus is the most important thing now, both for a Jew and a Gentile. And faith um, requires both um, believing in the actions of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, uh, fulfilling that covenant that the Jews never were able to fulfill, but it also requires action and following after Jesus with all of your heart um, in a way that's not like a Romans 2 Christian where you are um, doing things behind the scenes while you're also judging other Christians. Um, it implies um, that you are um, having some kind of uh, allegiance to Jesus, and that means following after him with all of your heart. And he shows how Abraham believed God, um, and uh, it was credited to him as righteousness, and how throughout the entirety of chapter 4, Abraham can serve as a summation of both Jews and Gentiles. That's where we left off, and now we're going to jump straight into chapter 5, where he's then going to sum up all of the richness of chapter 3 in a lot of ways, all of the power of Jesus and him being the Messiah of both Jews and Gentiles, and how that works out for the community in Rome, and how they can now boast in something other than the law, and what they're going to boast in is very, very different, um, and it's something that's going to show how um, transformative Jesus's ministry and his life and his death and resurrection have been to Paul um, and what he hopes will be transformative to this community of people. So let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings 
because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Mo Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespasses of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so we open up with a therefore, which um, uh, usually is one of Paul's um, shorthand ways of communicating to anyone that's uh, listening to his letter being read aloud, um, that they are to take everything before it and really sum it all up as a um, linking to whatever he's about to say next, and that's definitely the case here. Um, we've already talked about that in the intro, so I don't think I need to really re recapitulate too much of that. Um, but uh, he starts with, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Again, we've talked about justification um, a lot uh, already. Um, this is just a, a phrase that really means to make righteous or to be um, to put um, the people that uh, of Christian. Uh, Christianity um, in the right relationship with God, um, both Jew and Gentile. Therefore, since we have uh, been put in the right relationship um, with God through the faith of both um, 
God uh, living up to his covenant promises and us having faith in him. That's a both dual thing there. Um, That's something we also learned about in chapter four. We have peace. Um, Peace is a really interesting word um, because uh, in the Old Testament, at least, um, the word was um, a Hebrew word um, that was um, named shalom. And shalom uh, took on such a rich meaning in the Old Testament. Um, They would often say, peace be on your house. Um, It was quite um, regular for them to say, uh, peace when they um, left a person like they it was almost as the same thing as like may the force be with you <laughs> um, it you it had that same kind of communication of just like um, implying some kind of favor and um, there's actually a really good explanation of what it meant um, to the New Testament Jews um, in uh, the latest season of the chosen um, they have a scene where a Roman centurion is talking with a Jew and uh, it's actually Peter in the scene and um, he says uh, Shalom Shalom to the um, centurion and the centurion asks him why you, why did you say it twice um, and he explains how peace can just mean like general well wishes and like good favor towards another person but if you say it twice what you're saying is you want um, complete and total peace to be enacted on a person and that really calls back to the Hebrew word for Shalom didn't just mean good things and like a kind of peaceful situation it also represented like completeness and wholeness and um, if you were like um, mentally distraught you didn't have peace um, if you were um, if your crops didn't come in for this um, the um, harvest uh, the way you had hoped, you would um, not be having peace. There was a lot more to the word than just um, like a peaceful situation like we might envision the word today. It it implied this kind of complete um, wholeness or fullness um, is another way of saying that. Um, If you were filled to the the brim um, with all of life, um, that would be a good representation of peace. And I think that's what Paul's kind of pulling on here. Remember, he opens this entire letter by saying grace and peace to you. Um, And he opens most of his letters with that. And um, his point here is that now that um, we have both this faith in how God has worked through our life and how God will continue to work in our life through Christ Jesus, um, through his death on the cross and and through his resurrection. Um, Now we can continue to have um, that faith in the future, and that gives us a completeness, a a peace um, that um, really... cements in our lives, this um, new sense of being a human even. Um, We're no longer a broken vessel, but we're instead um, whole, you know, Um, and all that's kind of being communicated with this word here. Um, He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like I was just saying, it's Jesus that um, uh, is communicating this. This is also interesting too, because I haven't really talked about the specifics of these words a lot, and it is important to just bring up briefly. Um, Lord in Greek um, is um, often used of like military commanders um, and masters. Um, you could almost translate this as our master, Jesus Christ, and that would be, uh, I would think, even maybe a better translation. It's also the word that will get used for the divine name in the Old Testament. Um, a lot of times, uh, you may hear someone use the word Adonai, um, which is um, the 
Hebrew word for master um, in replacement of the the divine name, which is Yahweh. Um, and as a result, um, in the New Testament, they will use the equivalent to Adonai um, in Greek, which is this word Lord, um, which I believe is um, the word um, kurios. So yeah, that word has um, often been debated actually in academic circles because um, a lot of the time, uh, People are trying to figure out whether or not it just meant master or if they really were trying to say that Jesus was divine um, when this word pops up. And, you know, uh, I, I per- personally believe that Jesus was divine. Um, but as far as like those academic circles go, they're trying to figure out like whether or not Paul was arguing that in this passage or not, um, wh- where that kind of developed in the whole Christian um, idea of Jesus being divine. Some people like to argue that um, the Christians didn't think Jesus was divine until way later. And that's why um, uh, the book of John um, has Jesus obviously being divine, but then um, the um, synoptic gospels, for instance, uh, seem to have way less of an argument for him being divine, and they kind of make this whole map or whatever. I really don't get into those debates all that often. I just kind of choose to take the simple view that um, uh, Paul probably did mean that he was divine, and um, that this word Lord uh, is one way of communicating that. Um, the interesting thing is a lot of people think of Jesus Christ as like um, one name when Jesus is really his name and Christ is actually a um, word that <laughs> has really uh, in many ways been translated multiple different ways. Um, it's uh, uh, in Hebrew, the word is um, um, which is um, the word for anointed one. Um, but then that got, uh, translated into Greek and when it got translated into Greek, it got translated as Christos. Um, and Christos also means anointed one. Um, but at the same time, it also got translated as, um, uh, Mashiach, which is, um, their, their, um, word for Messiah and Messiah is oftentimes what Christ, um, took on the meaning of, because Messiah also means anointed one. Like I said, it's very confusing. Um, that's where Messiah actually comes from, uh, the uh, Hebrew word Messiah. Um, and as a result, uh, it's communicating he's an anointed one, but the reason he's anointed is because there's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that prophesy that there's going to be a Lord's anointed, like David was anointed and like Saul was anointed, that will become the king of the Jews. And as when he becomes the king of the Jews, he will get rid of the Romans and he will become the savior that establishes um, Zion on the hill. And all the Jews will then become the light to the Gentiles again and uh, fill out all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that were saying that the Jews would finally be able to um, get and gain back access to um, their land and as a result um, then be able to worship God freely in the land of Israel, right? All of that is getting communicated with that one word. And unfortunately in English, we don't uh, use Christ for that category. We often use that uh, Christ just as his last name. Um, And so I wanted to bring it up just to kind of reiterate that there are three things kind of being communicated here. One, his name. Two, the fact that he's Lord, probably God. And three, that uh, he is the Messiah of the Jews. Um, And all three of those um, are working together really to 
give um, an understanding of who Jesus was, really, too, um, since, you know, Jesus's name is different. But um, as a result, like, there's a lot of, well, and, you know, honestly, I should actually talk about Jesus a little bit, too, because um, in uh, the book of... uh, Zechariah, there is a character named Yeshua, which is the word in Hebrew that Jesus comes from, um, who is prophesied to um, be a priest. And so even the name Jesus has some relationship to Old Testament um, prophecies. And it's a really interesting book that you can go and read. You'll be very confused if you read the book of Zechariah. Um, but yeah, each three of these um definitely has a lot of um, meaning that I think when we just regularly um, read through it, we we miss out on. And it's something really important, I think, to what he's saying here. So that's why he uses all three here, Lord Jesus Christ. And I think in many ways he's communicating that Jesus is both our master, someone that we should follow after with a faith um, uh, that he also showed when he was um, being faithful to God and being faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. Um that he is that high priest figure, like in Zechariah, and then also that he is the Jewish Messiah that's come and fulfilled the covenant so that now Jews and Gentiles can all be together, right? That's Those are the three things that are being communicated there. Sorry, that took way longer than it should have, um, but it's just necessary to kind of get through those three words. Um, verse two, finally, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, right? So his idea here is that um, it's through Christ Jesus that now Christians have gained access um, by having faith in Jesus into a grace that he is now offering to any who believe in him. That's something he was saying in Romans three. So I don't think there's much new um, there. Here's what's interesting. And, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Um, this is really cool because if you remember from chapters three and four, he uh, spent a long time talking to the Jews in particular um, about how we shouldn't be boasting in um, the law or we shouldn't be boasting in our own um, attempts at following the law because um, we, uh, the Jews originally could not follow the law anyway. And so, um, and on top of that, in chapter four, he talks about how the if we were able to boast in the law, that meant that we um, weren't receiving a gift at all, but that instead we were um, uh, just earning something. We were working for it and earning it, and therefore it can't be a gift if we're just earning it, right? Um, that's an idea that he's going to pick back up again, because even though we can't boast in our own attempts um, at getting in right relationship with God, what we can boast in is these things here that he's going to mention. And so he's really um, contrasting between um, what he was saying in chapter three and chapter four of what we can't boast in, namely the law, um, and what we can boast in. And this is really interesting, because what he says we can boast in is in the hope of the glory of God. Um, this is really difficult as well because glory oftentimes has such a <laughs> Christianese kind of vagueness to it that I feel like uh, I've asked so many Christians like, "What do you what What does the word glory mean to you?" And everybody's just kind of paused and been like, "Huh." Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, and what what uh, really helped me was I watched several sermons from Tim Mackey, who is kind of the co-founder of the Bible pro- uh, Project on the word glory. And 
one of the things he talks about is something that I had never realized was something C.S. Lewis was doing when he wrote his famous essay, The Weight of Glory. Glory in the Old Testament um, uh, actually is the word kavod, and it means heavy. Um, and you might first be asking, well, why, why, why would glory mean heavy? Um, if it means glory. And uh, one of the interesting things with how the Old Testament saw glory was that um, a lot of the way that they would um, think about something being valuable was through weight. If you think about it, like um, when they would exchange certain things for other things, like exchange gold for maybe a cloth or something like that, they would actually weigh their gold on a scale. Um, And scales were hugely important because... um, that was how you determined how much money you actually had, your weight in gold, right? Um, or your weight in silver. And the reason um, that became synonymous with glory was that if you think about it, like you're really determining the value of what you have uh, monetarily um, with a scale, with its weight. And as a result, um, glory took on this way of being um kind of closely related to weight and the idea of like when something is heavy, um, it's glorious. It's, it's heavy in value, right? Um, it's filled with value. Um, and this became kind of, uh, the word of the day, (laughs) even, um, overweight, People in the Old Testament times were called glorious people or heavy people. Um, it uses the same word heavy there um, for people um, in there's a there's a funny story in Judges in which someone is called um, glorious, glorious or heavy, heavy um, because um, and I think it's like a king of Moab that Ehud um, stabs because he's left handed. It's a whole weird story in Judges. Um, but, yeah, it's like the, it gets used quite a bit as this. Um, weight. And that kind of carries itself on into the New Testament. But what's interesting is there's also another strand in which glory takes on a suffering component to it. Um, there's several um, Psalms in which um, it talks about how the glory of the Lord or the glory of um, uh, the suffering servant is that he is going to suffer. Um, and glory um, will take on a new meaning, not even a new meaning, but will pick up on those threads of Psalms um, and also passages in Isaiah and really bring them to the forefront, especially in the book of John, where Jesus begins to claim that he is going to um, come into his glory. Um, he's going to show his glory to the world. He's going to show his weight to the world. And that glory is the cross. He's talking very explicitly about the cross. Um, by the time he gets to his Sanhedrin trial, the thing that gets them all to claim that he's blaspheming is that you're going to see the glory of the Son of Man lifted up. And that's a very, very literal meaning there. They're going to lift him up on a cross pretty soon, and they're going to see his glory as he's um, lifted up on a cross. And the idea there is they're going to see his significance. They're going to see how um, glorious that is. But it's a reversal of the word glory, because up until this point, humans have had a very different image of what glory means, about what is valuable and what is significant. Um, But the cross is really the undoing of human understanding of glory, and we get to see a completely different weightiness or significance to um, Jesus' death on the cross, and afterwards Christians all um, rest in that. Like I said, again, that might be too long of an explanation of the word glory, but it really helps to understand what Paul is saying we're boasting in, which is boasting in a hope of the glory of God. 
after all that's been done, I think you guys have an understanding of what the glory of God is. It is Jesus on a cross um, reconciling humans to himself, right? Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. I think you can kind of see why he goes from glory to sufferings like right out of the gate now uh, based off of how uh, Christ's glory was shown on the cross. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And this idea here is really, really fascinating. So he takes that concept of Jesus's suffering as glory on the cross, and then he begins to build a argument for how Christians in the now, um, people that are listening to his letter, um, can live out that same story in their own lives, living out glory-filled lives. And what he finds is that just like Jesus glorying in his suffering, we also are to glory in our suffering. We're to add weight to our sufferings. We're to add that kind of significance of whenever we're suffering. Um, it is a going to the cross moment, taking up our cross and following him moment. Um, and as a result of that, what that's going to do is it's going to produce in us perseverance. You know, we're going to become people um, that have as like a way better way of managing suffering than the rest of the world world uh, does. And as a result, that's going to allow us to have this perseverance, this holding on to a hope beyond ourselves, a hope that even as the crucifixion caused um, hope eventually uh, in resurrection, no matter, like the crucifixion is so horrible, but at the end of the day, like um, the whole reason Jesus went through it is because he had a hope of resurrection and he had to have perseverance through the awfulness of crucifixion, holding out on the hope that the resurrection would come. That's kind of the same thing that we have throughout all of our small sufferings that we go through every day of our life, is that even though it's awful, we have this hope of resurrection going through it, and that creates in us perseverance. What then happens is that perseverance then creates a kind of person as a result of it. Whenever you ha- when, whenever you meet a person that has perseverance, you will find someone that is filled with a good character. They're just able to manage things. They don't get mad as easily. Um, They don't get frustrated as easily. They have a good sense of self-control about them and how they respond and behave to other people. And it creates in them this better character than you would find in most people. This is honestly one of the things that I think Christians have missed in our world today, um, because I find that um, Christians don't really uh, teach on this subject and don't teach of the value that suffering can bring to bettering you, even if it is something that is horrendous in the moment. Um, if you can last through it, um, it is something that can bring a really, really powerful distinction between you and the rest of the world. Um, as a result, through that character of being someone that's always persevering, um, then hope comes as a result of that. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, The idea here is that once we've gotten the character um, that um, is really created through enduring the suffering and having this perseverance, what that does then is over time and over repeated instances of that and developing this character, we just end up having a lot more hope in our lives. We end up always looking forward beyond the suffering that we're having to something that's going to be the light at the end of the tunnel, basically, a chink in the armor of whatever darkness we're going through. And we be, over repetition of doing that, it 
begins to create more and more hope. Um, and so it kind of becomes this thing where the more and more you do it, the more and more hope you get, um, which is just really beautiful. Um, it's a part of like um, uh, the whole story that um, – really maps on to the Christian life as well. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here is that, you know, through Christ's death and creating uh, and through his own moral character, he inspired hope and in everyone else and hope um, uh, that then carries on into how we live our lives today. Um, this hope doesn't put us to shame. That's a line that's often put um, uh, talked about in the Psalms. As a matter of fact, um, my worship leader here and uh, I actually sat down and wrote a song um, about that line, um, don't put us to shame. The idea here being communicated is just that um, there is throughout the entire Psalm, uh, Psalm Psalter, uh, a sense in which the prophet is constantly doubting whether or not God's going to pull through and get him out of the suffering that he's enduring. And so he oftentimes at the very end of a psalm will say, Lord, please don't put me to shame. Like, don't put me uh, to shame that I am um, trusting in you right now. Um, and Paul's point here is that, like, uh, when we have this hope that's created through this, it does not put us to shame. We don't. Um, we are never in that situation of uh, being put to shame for that hope. Uh, and the reason he says this is because God's love is always in in us. It's been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so there's always a sense in which um, we're, we have access to the most tender, loving feeling that you could imagine, which is God's love. And um, it will constantly be a source of hope in your life that um, does not put you to shame. Even if things don't work out, you can always just go back to that. You can always kind of rest your hat on that of the fact that God's love is within you and the Holy Spirit is comforting you in those sufferings. Verse six, then he says, you see at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. This is really interesting because, um, there is a kind of debate that goes on in some Christian circles about um, whether or not uh, the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus is a um, moment in time in which uh, multiple prophecies of the Old Testament uh, have yet to be fulfilled. That's one interpretation. And they would say um, that the Old Testament was um, a fancy word called the Old Testament dispensation, and then you would have the time of Jesus as its own dispensation, and now we're in the church's dispensation, um, and that there'll be another future time after that, which will be called the end times dispensation. Um, and dispensation is just a fancy word that indicates a, a section of time, a, a, a segmented period of time. Uh, over and against that view, I would say, is this verse you see just at the right time. Um, the NIV kind of punts here with this translation of just in the right time. Um, really, I think a better translation would be in the fullness of time. Um, and that's actually where a lot of commentaries go with this line. You see in the fullness of time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And here he's pulling from a lot of Old Testament prophecies about there being an end to the age that's going to come about and that a new age is uh, is to come essentially um and so uh 
there is over and against that dispensational view in which you have segmented times and they keep continuing. Um, there is uh, the more uh, biblical, I would say, and more standard view in which there is a um, time period um, that uh, exists in the Old Testament, and then there is the new age and new creation that comes about after Jesus, and that those two are really the only two times um, that exist, really, um, the time before Jesus and the time after Jesus. Um, some people have made the argument that maybe like the time before Adam's first sin counts as an age as well, the age of um, the world without sin. Um, I'm not sure the Bible ever actually says that, um, but um, some people have made that argument. Um, over and over and over again, however, you will find in the Old Testament prophecies that there are really only two eras. Um, there is the era of all of the Old Testament prophecies coming to their completion, and then once that is completed, then there is the new age in which the kingdom of God is finally established here on earth. Um, that's really as simple as it gets, and so... Um, with this line, just at the right time, I think that's what he's communicating here, is just in the fullness of time, in the fullness of all of those Old Testament prophecies coming to their end, right? Um, you see uh, you see Jesus um, um, dying for the ungodly. And while everyone was powerless to do anything, to fix any of the problems that were still going on in the Jewish land at the time, um, to be able to do... Um, to get rid of the Romans even, um, like everyone was powerless. And at that moment, at the fullness of time, that's when Christ died for the ungodly. It's just, an, it's just a powerful point that I think um, is really important for understanding how Paul sees the Old Testament all getting fulfilled in Christ and that a new era has dawned. Um, new creation is the language that um, he'll use in Romans 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Um, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, most people don't debate this first. Um, his idea here, it is interesting to point out that good person, it's a completely different word in um, the Greek. And good person is actually what most people think the word righteous means. Um, we talked about that in um, the last few episodes, that righteous has a completely different meaning than good. Um, and uh, this is one of the verses that you can actually point to to show the difference between the two, because God, uh, not God, uh, Paul compares a um, the first sta uh, statement says that very few people would ever die for someone that's in a right relationship, either with them or with God. He's, I think he's kind of implying um, with them. Um, but uh, he says, uh, and, and that's a very interesting statement. Very rarely will anyone die for someone that's just in good standing with another human. Um, but if the person is good, like as a moral person, like and as someone that everybody kind of views as being this like morally good person, there's possibly someone that might actually die for that person. Um, that's really what he's getting at here. And it's very important to kind of see that distinction between the two Um uh, for interpretations of chapters one through four before it, um, which we've already talked about. So I won't get into that too much, but like I said, you can go back and um, this is a good proof text for that interpretation, I guess I would say. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Um, this has been a line that's used quite often, um, and it's something that I have harped on and um, not harped, but just preached on in my sermons um, is the idea that like you were loved even before you were justified, right? Um, that like Christ died for us while we were still sinners. There is so much love there already um, for people that are in the camp of um, debauchery and evil and wickedness. And we really do need to wrestle with that as a concept that um, uh, while we were still in sin, Christ died for us, um, which is just a powerful, powerful uh, point to think about when you think about how you um, are to really uh, like talk to other people about um, the gospel even, um, is to start with this concept of Christ um, uh, attempting to fix his relationship with um, them as opposed to um, uh, maybe even saying that they are sinners at the start. Um, I've found a lot more success in saying that um, even though you kind of always have to talk about the fact that we're all sinners, um, there is a sense in which um, starting with the fact that Christ loves you in your sin so much that he died for you, that is always a way better way to phrase it, I guess I would say, than just saying, um, man, you really disappointed God and God's super mad at you as your starting to uh, statement. Um, it's it this this line here actually is very counter to that in that um, it's not that um, Christ had to die for us so that God then loved you. God loved you from the very beginning, and then He died for you so that He can uh, restore the relationship between you. That's a way better and more truthful to the Bible, I would say, way to phrase phrase the gospel narrative. In verse 9, he then says, since we have now been justified by his blood, um, we've talked about that before in chapter 3, how um, the blood in the Levitical um, system was um, the way that uh, if you were sprinkled with that blood on the Day of Atonement, um, you were cleansed of your sins, um, and so you were made right, um, and you were put in right relationship with God again. Um, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. And again, this is a point that I do bring up a lot is that just because we've been justified doesn't mean that um, we currently have been saved from his wrath. Um, that's still yet to come. There's a final judgment, which he talked about in Romans chapter 2. And remember, he pointed out Christians could still suffer under that wrath if they're being hypocritical and not doing the things that they should be doing um, while being hi- hypocritical. And so there is this kind of like. Um, uh, sense in which um, he is saying, um, if you're a Christian that has been justified, um, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him if we stay in him? And that's the big point. You've got to stay in him. And that's something that he's going to um, say throughout the rest of this book is that um, there is definitely a component in which he expects anybody that's been justified to be saved through him. But there are definitely, you can go back to Romans 2 and listen to that episode. There are definitely some exceptions to that. Um, and just because that's an expectation he has doesn't mean that that is a full on guarantee. Um, we'll talk a lot about that in the episodes to come. Um, but um for now at least just go back to our Romans 2 episode and you can really see a situation at least where he sees someone being justified at least um, still uh, doing things that will mean that they will have to endure a wrath from God. 
Verse 10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Um, Again, just kind of reiterating the same principle here. We've been reconciled to God through the death of his son, which is what the blood of Jesus is all about is reconciliation, being put back in right relationship, right um, um, status with um, God. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And so that's the life that he is pouring out in the spirit, which he just mentioned earlier. That's what's going to keep us on the right track. That's that's what's going to keep us in perseverance and in hope. Um, That's what's going to keep us in Christ is what he'll eventually get to. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's those three words we talked about earlier coming back again. Um, This time we actually boast in God through whom we have now received reconciliation. So he's saying not only are we boasting in the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, we also boast in God being the one that sent his son, right? Like God is the one that enacted all of this. God was faithful to the covenant of Israel even though we were not, right? Um, And that's his big point. And again, I don't want you to lose sight of this concept that this is still, still about Jew and Gentile relations. And really all of this is just showing that now um, living in the life of a Christian, both Jew and Gentile are getting to boast in the very same thing, which is God and God's faithfulness to them and to the covenant of Israel and to the um, and to the bringing of the Gentiles into this new life, right? It's for everyone. And as a result of it being for everyone, both sides can now um, live the same way. And by living the same way, um, they get to boast in these things of what Jesus did for them in the past. And by doing that, what they will then become as a people that's not judging one another. Um, if you're filled with this character and perseverance and suffering, right, and you're living the same way that Jesus lived by dying for someone that was undeserved um, for you to die for, right, like dying for a sinner, if you're living that same kind of way, this way of suffering um, and glorifying in it even, if you're living this way, you're not going to have a community of people that, like, um, is having infighting going on the whole time. You're going to have a community of people that is constantly putting others first um, because you're living the same way that Jesus lived for you. That's his big point here. Um, He then kind of switches tactics here. Um, And this is something that, again, a lot of people, this last section, I guess I will say, is the most um, written about section um, for a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of doctrines that come up through here. Um, uh, Augustine is a big name that um, this is, this was Augustine's big, like favorite passage for a while, um, especially during Augustine and Pelagian's big debates. There's a whole side rabbit trail you could go into um, with Augustine versus Pelagian. And I won't get into that. Honestly, you can go to your own research about that if you want to. Um, what's interesting is that um, there is, have been very few sections uh, books that I've researched on this that have done a good job of marrying the top portion of chapter five with the bottom portion of chapter five. And as a matter of fact, the top portion and the bottom portion oftentimes, uh, uh, feel disjointed um, just by the very nature. You'll notice in chapter in verse 12, um, there's actually this, um, 
uh, M dash, which is this just long dash that signifies a breaking of thought from Paul's original argument. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, commentators will actually argue that the last section of this is really just Paul kind of going off on a tangent, um, which it definitely kind of even reads that way. And we'll kind of talk about that. But I do want to make it very clear that this is not just like completely divorced from the things above. Um, this is actually an outworking of the whole concept of um Jesus dying for sinners and what that means. Um, it's related in that we have up here, we have what it looks like for a Christian community to live with one another and how Christ is the, the um, central figure for how Christians are to uh, live, right? Like Christ is kind of the primary example of how we are to live and we're to live in that same way of having perseverance and glorifying in our sufferings um, and always putting the other person first um, and always attempting to reconcile ourselves to other people right like that's 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 how it's going down in this first section and so what he's going to take the time to do in this second section is then to really discuss the problem that originally was created um, through um, Adam. And he's going to talk about sin and death in particular. And really what he's going to do is kind of explain more deeply what it means to have reconciliation with um, God through Jesus Christ and why we get to boast in God um, and through Jesus Christ. What really is underneath that boast right there? Um, why is it that the crucifixion is the boasting um, like primary uh, thing that we can boast in, right? Um, so let's go ahead and dive into that. And you'll also get to see he's also doing something else here, which is he's attempting to do the same thing he did with Abraham, with Adam, in that he's again giving them an example of some kind of unifying figure in which everyone was under in the past, and now giving them another unifying figure, which he already talked about in these verses in the front, is Jesus, right? Um, we already kind of mentioned that as well. But he's going to compare now Adam to Jesus, and we're going to see how that works out. Verse 12 then starts, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. <laughs> um, already, this is kind of a mouthful, and so we'll just kind of pick it apart piece by piece. So again, his emphasis here is sin entered the world through one man, right? Again, this is kind of going back to um, Adam. It's funny that uh, he doesn't even mention Adam here. He just kind of assumes that everybody in this church community is probably going to know who the one man that sin entered the world through is going to be. But what a lot of commentators have pointed out, and this is very important to this entire passage, is that um, overarching theme of this is not sin, but the overarching theme of this is death. Um, he's really focused in on death in this whole section, and death is going to be the thing that really defines this entire section. So he says, just as sin entered the world through one man, not named yet, but we all kind of get a hint that it's Adam, and death through sin, so death is the consequence of sin entering into the world through one man, and in this way, Death came to all people because all sinned, right? So here's what's really interesting about this. Um, in the old translations of this, um, this last line, because all sinned, was translated 
in whom all sinned. And it was referring back to the one man in whom all sinned. So it would have been translated, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man in whom all sinned. And then it would have said, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Um, That has been St. Augustine's translation of that. And that is what created the doctrine called the doctrine of original sin, in which um, there was one man that came and uh, sinned and then brought, uh, because of him being the representative of all humanity, that meant that everyone ever since then uh, was born with sin within them. That's the old translation that kind of brought about that. Um, since then, we've learned that Augustine was famously wrong in that in tra- uh, translation. He translated from the Latin, not from the Greek. And uh, in the Greek translations, um, we've now fixed that translation to now say um, that all have sinned, and that is what uh, has allowed death to uh, come on all people, which is, if you think about it, a very different uh, theological statement. And I know, like I said, I'm trying to avoid theology um, uh, like very explicitly, um, but this is a very important one because this has really divided the church in a lot of ways. There's a lot of people in the church that really do believe that sin is hereditary, which is just a word that means that sin is within you from your birth, and that that sin came about through Adam, and that is the way uh, that um, it's taught a lot in old in teachings of Romans is that Romans is teaching that, and I want to make it very clear: Romans is not teaching that. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, there's definitely a causal relationship here to Adam causing sin to enter the world. Um, But if you notice, even back in chapter three, there's very much a distinction between sin being hereditary and just innate in a person, and this is what we were talking about even in chapter one, and sin being a powerful entity that exists outside of a human even that is like a um, Genesis four will use the language of a lion or like a beast that's crouching, waiting to devour the human. If they make the wrong choice, um, it's not innate to the person. It is something that um, uh, is part of the outside world that has now entered into the world. And is this a lion or beast seeking to devour humans that make the wrong decisions. Right. As a result of the sin entering the world, this power of sin entering the world, death then comes into the world now that sin is in the world. Because, again, he will say this back in chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. So the sin, this powerful entity in the world, um, now is um, essentially like causing death to happen. And that death comes to all people because there's not a single person that has not had the power of sin overwhelm them at some point in their life, right? That's what this first statement is saying. Just want to be very clear on that that first line. Again, some of you uh, may be uncomfortable with that because you've been taught a very different way on that all of your life. And I like understand um, reading things in a different way, but I also really do believe that like um, this, this line here um, was translated incorrectly and that's kind of what led to it there is a there is a verse that we'll get to later on where you might be able to get to there um, and we'll talk about that verse um, but at least with this verse here at the top that verse is not communicating any kind of hereditary nature to Adam and sin we'll talk about the 
verse later on, though. Um, Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged to anyone's account where there is no law. Again, notice how sin here is not inside a person. It's just sin as an entity, as this powerful thing that just exists in the world. Um, But it's not charged to anyone's account because where there is no law. And this kind of goes back to what he was saying in Romans 1 about how um, if there's no Genesis through Deuteronomy to really uh, show where you're disagreeing with God's right order for the universe, if there's no um, teaching on that point, then all you have is your own conscience, right? Um, That's what he says back in Genesis uh, one, and when all you have is your own conscience, you're really um, uh, not getting credited to your account being a lawbreaker. Is a word that he'll use quite a bit. You're not getting called a lawbreaker. Um, you're just doing things according to your own conscience, essentially. Um, and that's not um, to say that <laughs> in some uh, way, shape, or form you won't still get wrath, um, but. The what he's saying here is that there's no covenant that you're breaking. You're not breaking a covenant with God. It's not being charged to an account or credited to your account. Uh, really, credited here would be the better word. It's the same word that's used for Abraham getting credited as righteousness. Just being um, accounted would be a good word too. Counted would be a good word. Um, uh, not uh, in that sense. Like sin in this time period, basically, is what he's saying is. Um, not being accounted to being that covenant-breaking situation that the Jews will find themselves in way later um, when they finally are given the law. Um, And that's the very thing that Jesus has to fix um, when he dies on the cross as their Jewish Messiah, um, is he has to um, enact what the Jews were supposed to do from the very beginning of the law, which was to be the people that were to be the light to the nations, right? I keep saying that, but that's the real, real point. But before that time, there, nobody was charged to anyone's account that they were breaking that. Again, not saying that like they weren't sinning, like the verse before it says that they were sinning, but it's not being charged as something in which they're breaking the covenant of Moses in which um, they are a people specifically supposed to follow God and be holy and uh, be in right relationship with God according to this covenant. That's not getting charged to their account in this days. So maybe that makes sense. In verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. That's a little confusing because it does appear in some senses to uh, like suggest that maybe there were some people that existed that never did sin. Um, but in many ways, he's also relating the idea of a command being given, right? Um, which is very much related to the concept of um, law again. And again, I think he's saying here, even this little phrase here, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, um, he's not saying that people did not go around sinning um, ever and that there are some people that just never were able to com- commit a single sin. What he's saying is the commands that were given in this time period were very sparse. And so there were probably a few people that never sinned breaking a command because they were never given a command to sin. Right. And that's something he's going to 
pick up again at the very end of this whole passage. And he's kind of trying to set the stage for the fact that when a command is given, this is something he'll talk about in Romans 7, when a command is given, that instantly makes sin a way more powerful thing than it was um, when commands are not given because suddenly you're put with a choice in front of you and the power of sin will instantly make you want to go and sin in a way, uh, want to disagree with that command is something he'll get to in Romans 7. So he's kind of setting the stage for that here in this chapter, but I don't think he's saying that there were people during the time of uh, Adam through Moses that were just able to live a completely sinless life. If you take that view, then like uh, up above in chapter 12, uh, not chapter 12, in verse 12, the very end of the line, in that way, death came to all people because all sinned. Um, you kind of have to like explain that away a little bit. Um, there is definitely with this all and uh, throughout this entire um, chapter, this all here does not necessarily mean um, just all people, but it can also mean all in the sense of what we've talked about all the way up to this point, which is Jews and Gentiles, all Jews and all Gentiles. Uh, a lot of times Paul will use all, not just as like, talking about every human ever existed, but he will talk about how um, all just means including both a Jew and a Gentile in this category, right? Um, that's something that can often get confusing in how Paul uses it. But I do think here he means literally everyone sinned um, in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think it's very hard to argue that there was ever someone that was a sinless person. Um, but unlike Augustine, and this is where I differ with Augustine, unlike Augustine, I do not think that's because of sin being hereditary. I think that's because there is this powerful force of sin in the world, this power of sin that causes us to make a decision towards one one um, way over another. Again, uh, we'll get to that later on in the, this, this whole passage. So he talks about how there were... Um, Death then reigns from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who weren't given a commandment um, and therefore weren't breaking commandments. Um, as a result of that, um, you have to ask the question like, um, what's going to like come out of that? Like death being able to reign, um, like how, how is this all going to get summed up basically? And he talks about that at the very end. Adam broke a commandment, um, and as a result of breaking a commandment, don't eat from the tree, um, he then becomes a pattern for Jesus. Um, it's very interesting that he says that it's a pattern for Jesus, um, because basically what we have here is him setting Adam up as um, this uh, person whose action then has a ripple effect into the world and has a... Um, a bringing about of the power of sin into the world. And like that, Jesus will have an action that has a ripple effect in which the powers of sin and death are defeated. Um, just as Adam brought sin and death into the world, Jesus will defeat sin and death at the cross. And that's really what he's contrasting here, which is why he says that Adam is a pattern of Jesus. It's Jesus reverses the action of Adam. But the gift is not like the trespass. Here he's giving kind of some clarifications. You can't just do a direct one for one, Adam to Christ. He's giving some kind of qualifications to how Christ is very different in what he did versus what Adam does. For if the many died by the trespasses of the one man, again, he's just talking about how many people died as a result of sin and death entering into the world, how much more? 
to God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. So here is a really interesting point. He says, like, yes, like this entity of sin entered into the world, right? And as a result of sin entering into the world, um, many died. um, And yeah, it was a really horrible situation. But he's saying when Jesus' death and the gift of grace came, that overflowed way more super abundantly, way more than this power of sin. This is also why I don't think it's hereditary, because if it was hereditary, then you really would have to say that it's direct one for one. Sin, like, literally is in every human being from the very beginning of time. Um, And as a result, uh, like when you compare these two, um, you would not find much of a difference. The sin and death got applied to every human and then the grace got applied to every human, right? That's kind of, that's kind of what's being implied here. If you take the hereditary sin view, but if you take the view that sin was just a power that existed in the world that came about, then this verse actually makes a lot more sense is what he's saying here is, yes, there was a trespass that happened, a breaking of the covenant that happened with uh, Adam. Um, And that caused um, so much death and sin to come about, right? Um, As a matter of fact, there's never been a human that's been able to not sin as a result of that. Um, And the power of sin has been so great that it's caused every human to sin, right? But What's crazy about it is it still was limited. It still was just a power in the universe, right? It wasn't like this thing that just was innate to each person and everybody um, is just like innately sinning. It's just a power in the universe. And what he's saying here is that there's something even greater that comes about with Jesus's gift. And that is that it overflows to literally both a Jew and a Gentile, right? It's a, it's a grace that overflows to the whole world. And all a person has to do is accept it, um, which is a very, very different um, action than Adam's action in which we have to actually um, choose to, um, uh, in some way, shape or form, uh, sin. Whereas here, there is a grace that's offered to every single person, um, this grace of Jesus that's offered to every single person. And yes, you do have to choose to accept it, but it's a very different thing to choose to accept something for as opposed to choosing to go down a path. Um, And choosing to accept Jesus's grace is, I mean, there's definitely a choosing of a path after that. Um, But his point here is that like this gift is so, so incredible and it's so abundant. It's given to every single human being. Um, And like the part of this that I find just really like fabulous is how powerful Jesus's gift is in comparison to Adam's sin. Um, And he's not trying to draw a direct one for one. You can just read that here in the passage, how you wrestle with that. Like I'll leave that to you, but like that is very much here. He says, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. Once again, kind of reiterating that point, I think because it's such an audacious point, um, he has to reiterate it here. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, right? Judgment here being the death of so many different people um, from Adam to Moses and really beyond. But this gift followed many trespasses, many people then messing up and breaking 
sin, like breaking covenants with one another and with God, and received God's abundant uh, and brought. Ju- sorry, I skipped a line. And brought justification. So the gift brought restored relationship with God, right? Um, And that's that's his point here. It's like one brought judgment and one brought restored relationship. Um, You know, it's always way better to get like a right relationship with God than to get a judgment from God. Like, I don't think I need to explain why that one's better than the other. (laughs) For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So he's, again, showing just how it's not just that we're back in right relationship with him, but we also get this gift of reigning in life. And like we actually get put into the seat of um, reigning, which is what sin and death were in control of before that's why i said sin and death is in this like power um uh house like they're in this like they're the ones that are reigning he says that in verse 14 nevertheless death reigned from the time of adam to the time of moses right so he's setting up this idea of like death being the ultimate ruler over the whole world and how things work now through the gift we all of us that have grace now get that reigning we all now reign as death used to reign and we all reign through the one man jesus christ who died on a cross and that was his enthronement his exalting his becoming the king over the whole world is through his death and that reigning is then what's picked up in chapter in revelation when he is this ruler over the entire world on a white horse right um this all is incredible to me like this this is showing just how disproportionate the sin of adam is to the death of jesus on the cross and i wish more sermons were preached on this i mean i understand why not because it's so complicated again everything i'm saying here there's so many different like positions on this and i'm sure there's maybe a few of you listening that maybe differ with me on this and that's totally okay but like the reason there are so many differences is because this is just a very dense thing and i do really think that working through this is is something that you should take some time to meditate on and really think about what paul's getting at here and again i will say it again because i always say it the main point of all of this is he's trying to show how the unification of Christ's action on the cross and his death gives both a Jew and a Gentile a sense of community with one another, that whereas Adam's sin caused division and breaking of um, covenants with one another, um, caused sin to happen between two humans, Christ's action causes reunification between two peoples. both Jew and Gentile and just pretty much anyone strong or weak um, is what he'll get to later on. Like his action here causes us to all be reigning um, together in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, which is just incredible, just incredible. Verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, again, makes sense because all have sinned. So also one righteous act result resulted in justification and life for all people, right? So there it's a direct one for one. One righteous act resulted in justification. But remember, it's not also a one for one because 
justification is way more incredible of a thing than condemnation. And this is another point that I'll bring up is a lot of people like to think that like condemnation, justice is in equal standing with mercy. And I don't think that that's what this whole passage is saying. This passage is saying that one is better than the other. And what is that one that's better than the other? It's saying that justification, mercy, being put back in a right relationship with God is better than God enacting justice on humans. It it just says that here, right? Like, you know, how much more he uses the language of um but the gift is not like the trespass, right? Like he is really pushing that distinction here that one is more like incredible and better than the other. And I really think you need to like um, meditate on that and think about that. There's there's actually some verses even in the Old Testament that say the very same thing though. So it's not just here and it's not just me importing that. Um, there's a passage in Ezekiel. I actually can't remember it off the top of my head, but um, there's a passage in Ezekiel at the very end that says like, I never desired to punish you. Uh, if, if I had things my way, I want to be reconciled to you, but you won't let me be reconciled to you because you keep sinning. Um, and that is always a point that will be brought up is God does not want to bring about justice on people. He wants to bring mercy to them. And um, comparing justice and mercy, um, you can't just say that both are equal. One is always better than the other, and that is mercy. Even the way that he depicts himself um, when he says um, his famous line to Moses in Exodus, he says, um, I'll have mercy on tens of thousands of generations, and I'll only judge up to the third or fourth generation. Like there is a definite difference between having mercy on someone that does good and therefore he'll have mercy on their generations for up to 10,000 generations. Whereas if someone does bad, he'll only have um, justice on them up to their third or fourth generation, right? Like that's a very big, steep difference between those two. Again, so here's the verse that I was saying earlier you could make an argument for hereditary sin from, which is verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. What's interesting about the um, uh, verb here, made, is it really is a, uh, not the right translation here i think a better translation even if i just like do a casual like bible word study of that made is a very it can sometimes mean made but it's also like um can be translated appointed that's actually like the majority of translations in the new testament it's the word appointed um and there's a huge debate about how much of like this verb implies causal action to sinners. And even if it does, which I do think that there is a causal component here. I, I do think that, like, I think that in some way, shape or form, Adam is causing the rest of the world to be the rest of humankind to be sins. How he's causing the rest of humanity to be sinners is the big question. And Paul doesn't say, like, if he said Adam causes the rest of humanity to be sinners because, um, like if he had a line in there just at the very end of this that said like um, Adam caused all the rest to be sinners because after he sinned, um, sin is now inside him and that transmits 
uh, person to person, birth through birth, I'd totally be on board with that. But he does not go into the exact specifics of it. And I do think a, a careful reading of Genesis 3 and 4 seems to imply that the reason everyone was made sinners and the how of that is not that sin is transmitted innately in a person, but that sin was a powerful entity that was allowed release when he did his first sin in the Garden of Eden and became this force of destructive, um, terrific, beast-like proportions that is crouching now at the, like, door of any human decision and is waiting to devour a human based on whatever decision they are making and really prodding them in one direction, right? I do think that there's a prodding going on. This kind of inciting a person to sin is something you'll see throughout the Old Old Testament. It's not just, um, it's not just that uh, it's so external to a human that like a human has like uh, in some sense like a complete and total free will choice on the matter. But I think their free will is in some ways co-opted with this power of sin in the world that's prodding them in a direction. I just don't think it's innate. I don't think you see that here. Um, all, all we have here is this one verse that says that Adam's disobedience caused many to be made sinners. Um, how? Paul doesn't say, and I wish he did. Like we would answer a lot of questions, and a lot of uh, theological articles would not have been written um, if he had said how. <laughs> um, but since we're not given that information, I think we just should meditate on that. Um, go back and read Genesis three and four, and see how you see it, um, how you see sin entering into the world, and how that appears to work on. And again, if you come to a different perspective on me after meditating, that's great. Like. The point of this is not to tell you what to believe. The point is just to give you the information so that you can go and make the decisions um, based off of your own um, research and your own study. So he says that, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And again, remember he's comparing it to Jesus's actions. And this is why I I have a hard time believing that it's hereditary, because if the first one is hereditary, then kind of would imply that maybe the second one should be hereditary. And nobody debates that like Jesus's obedience was not a hereditary thing, that just every human that's been born after um, Jesus's death on the cross is now just instantly made right with God. Um, They have to have an action that they do to uh, make that happen, right? Um, And so nobody debates that. So it would be really weird if um, the first one is hereditary, but the second one is not the one he's comparing, Um, especially considering above, he argued that um, the uh, obedience um, and the gift is actually better than the trespass. If that were so, if the trespass is hereditary, but the um, obedience of the one man is not hereditary, that kind of implies that the trespass is actually more powerful than the uh, than the obedience of Jesus. And uh, again, that seems to be going against the flow of his argument. Again, like I said, I don't need to like make that point too heavily. I've already kind of made it. But those are just my thoughts on it overall. Verse 20 then, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, 
grace increased all the more. So what's funny about this is that was all a tangent we just went through in some ways, but also not. Like I was saying earlier, this was a tangent because he's really trying to clarify what he means by comparing Adam to Jesus. He's really showing how sin worked um, in this concept, how death is no longer reigning, but we are reigning, which is just an incredible idea. That's the most powerful point I think he's made in this whole thing. And he's really trying to unify both Jews and Gentiles underneath Adam and now Jesus, right? That's That's been his whole point. But what he really wanted to talk about, and this is what verse 20 gets back to, is he wanted to talk about like, what about the law? Like, what's going on with the law? How does the law work in? And he's made several comments even about how commands within this passage cause sin to increase. Um, and so he really sums up all of those small little comments in this section by saying, the law, again, talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy, was brought in so that the trespass might increase. This is like uh confounded a lot of people. Again, like I said, this was going to be the longest episode in the book of Romans, and here is why. (laughs) Um, But uh, in a lot of circles, people have debated what this is. Some people kind of give a metaphor of this being like um, the law was brought in so that like uh, we all could like realize how awful we are. And as a result of realizing how awful we are, we might want Jesus. That's been one interpretation of that. Um, Another interpretation has been that what I see in Romans 3, actually, which is um, that uh, the grace uh, was intended to always increase over the um, entirety of the Old Testament. And so in this view, you would say the law was brought in so that um, you would understand that God is a gracious God and that God has always been a gracious God. And the law was actually meant to teach you about the grace of God and not just through Jesus. Um, It's again, you would only take the first view if you believe that God didn't have grace throughout the entire Old Testament and then just started having grace in the New Testament. Um, I don't take that view. I see we talked about that in chapter four. I think Paul is arguing throughout the entirety of the book of Romans that grace is something that starts on the very first page in Genesis and ends um, with Revelation. Like grace is throughout the entirety of the um, Old Testament into the new. And as a result of that, the law was brought in to make the grace of God more obvious. And that's why I think the the line um, at the end of this, yes, trespasses did increase when the law was brought in, and that was a purpose of it. But what what also increases when sin increases? Grace increases as well. And that's his point, is that it was brought in to show that God is being a very gracious God and still following with his covenant faithfulness despite the increased amount of sin. Um, and it's really, in, in many ways, I think the law is uh, almost like um, uh, kind of rushing us to a understanding of God that God has always been about grace and has always been about forgiveness and has never been about um, strict judgment. And without the law, you don't understand how much grace God had for the Old Testament people. And this is something that David picks up way back. We talked about this in Psalm 32, right? Like David was very aware that he sinned every day. um, And he was very aware of that because of the law. Um, and, and as a result of that, that caused him to have this humble 
heart-driven perspective for God, and you wouldn't have that without the law. And that, I think, is what's really Paul's getting at here, and what he hopes these Jews in this time period will understand is that the law was not given so that you would be aware of how to fix your own life and how to get the whole covenant figured out and how to uh, then be the nation of Israel that's going to be a light to the nations. Um, The law was given so that you would be aware that you never could actually go get this to be done and that you were to cry out to God to help fix this. This is what Isaiah talks about at the very end is like after realizing the depth of Israel's sin and how much they've messed up, the the focus shifts to the suffering servant that needs to come. And sometimes like the prophet plays with the idea of the suffering servant being Israel in one sense. And maybe it is actually after all of the sinning that they've all done and breaking of the law, maybe maybe they actually will eventually like fulfill it. But then every now and then he throws in this weird distinction between Israel and the suffering servant. And it looks like someone else that's going to come on and rescue Israel because Israel sin is too great. Um, There's a line in Isaiah, it's too little a thing, um, he says to the suffering servant, to save Israel. I will also make you save the whole earth and all of the nations. Um, And it's this idea, right, that like Israel needs saving, the rest of the nations need saving, and as a result here, what we have um, is God really thinking about the covenant and showing that the law was meant to really get people thinking about the like trajectory of what God is doing and get people to think about the covenant that he made with Israel and how he really made it with himself and not with Abraham and how since then he's always been faithful to that covenant even in spite of the Israelites unfaithfulness and how we should have hope and trust in him being faithful yet again. And what causes us to have that trust is when we sin in our life, even today when we sin in our life, we know that we can come to him, ask him for forgiveness, and he will still be faithful to love us. That is what he's getting at here at the very end of this whole section. Um, And he'll talk about that more because that, again, brings up the whole question of like, if the law was just meant to really teach us about the grace of God, even in the Old Testament, like, what does that mean? for God's promises to the Jews for being the light to the nations? Does that mean that he was kind of lying to them? Like, how does that all work out? Like, you know, and that's something he'll pick up in Romans chapter 9, that question um, especially. So we have a lot to look forward to in that, but I do think that's what this verse is saying here. Verse 21 then says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, he's kind of showing how with the law, grace was increasing and increasing as the law was brought in, and now grace is reigning through the faithfulness or the rightness, the right relationship that Christ had with God to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is just a powerful way to end that. And overall, um, it's if Uh, like a wonderful um, finale to this concept of how death used to reign and now grace and us as Christians reign in 
replacement of death. Um, that power has finally been broken in the world, and that power will ultimately ultimately be shown to be broken when we all are resurrected one day, which is just a s- stunning, stunning thing. Um, something that you can just like go home and think about and meditate on for the rest of your life. So I hope this chapter brought you a lot, a lot of peace because that's how he opens this chapter. Um, and I hope it taught you some deep things about how Paul sees this whole thing. Um, this was in many ways a very hard one to teach because there are so many different ways to interpret all of this. Like I said, it's very theological. Um, but I do hope I made it clear that these, all of this theology does matter and that there there's a way that you can think about all this that like really wraps itself up in your everyday living. If you go about and think about, the fact that sin in your life, um, if you are repentant, you have to be repentant. But if you go about thinking that that sin is causing grace to increase, um, like, and that God's love for you is being poured out even more deeply for you, um, as Paul says here, there is such a richness to that um, that allows you to understand that Jesus' death and resurrection allow grace to be so much more powerful than sin or death could ever be. And that is really the forefront of this chapter. Um, And going throughout your whole life every day where it feels like sin and death still reign as the conquerors over your own decisions and in your own life. Maybe you don't feel like you glorify in your sufferings earlier on in this chapter, and you don't feel like you have that character and that perseverance and that hope, right? Like maybe you still feel there is a very, very real sense in which just the act of what David does in Psalm 32 of confessing to God your sins and realizing that this is the whole point of the law of Christ or the law of Torah, like the whole point is to get you to confess and feel the love of God in that confession. And when you feel that love, you then get this sense from the very start of that confession that you are forgiven and that you are loved and that uh, like it was all always God wanting you to confess and he never wanted to judge you for those things and he's always wanted to be with you and he's always wanted to be beside you and he's always wanted to give you grace and it is now reigning in your life. Um, I think all of that is really the summation of what Paul's trying to get at here um, throughout this whole chapter so that we all can then do that to one another. I I don't want to leave that aside. It's not just that it's been done to you by Jesus. The point of why he's bringing up all this rich theology is then the hard part of then once that grace is filling your life, you then want to make that a reality in the lives of everyone else around you, Um, which is just, again, hard, but it's part of what we're doing here is glorifying in our sufferings, glorifying in our character, right? Um, So yeah, Uh, I hope, like I said, this chapter um, really inspired you, maybe challenged you, and uh, I'll be back in your feed again next week as we go through the book of Romans chapter by chapter.